When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The Dugout, Football Social Daily. Welcome to the podcast featuring former Premier League professionals. This is the dugout from the Football Social Daily team. Every day of the campaign, a new podcast to get stuck into, even during the international break. And speaking of international football, England manager Gareth Southgate hasn't got long to go until the World Cup. He reached the semi-finals of the last one and the final of the Euros. Is he up there as one of England's best ever managers? We'll tackle that question as well as delving into the dark arts. Do they still exist in the modern game? And what are some of the oldest tricks in the book to get under the skin of your opponents? Also, we'll be picking some Premier League players who we feel haven't had the credit they've deserved over the years. More on that very shortly. But first, a warm welcome back to the show for our two guests on the dugout today. Former Southampton man Francis Benali and ex-Everton and England winger Trevor Stephen. Good to have you, gents. How are you? Good to see you, Niall. Nice to be back. Great. Thanks very much, Niall. I heard it was someone's birthday yesterday. Is that right, Trevor? <laughs> it was, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm getting on, man. I'm getting on. Uh, I'm 60 next year, put it that way. So 59 yesterday. Uh, yeah, so I had a quiet one. You know, the older you get, the quieter they get. So. <laughs> well, you just told us before we started recording that you've managed to consume a keg of Guinness. So if that's a quiet one, I don't want to know what a, a wild one is. <laughs> don't, don't you know when a man is joking, Niall? I was only kidding you. Yeah. Pulling your leg. Well, I'm not sure I believe that. But anyway, we'll move on with the rest of the podcast. And we'll start with England, who, of course, are in the middle of the latest international break. Nations League games against Italy and Germany. Gareth Southgate on the whole has done very, very well as the England manager, hasn't he, since he took over from Roy Hodgson some six or so years ago now. He's reached a World Cup semi-final in his time in charge of the Three Lions. He's reached a Nations League final. And of course, he reached the Euros final last year where England were beaten by Italy. But you can't please everyone. And there have been some asking for a change. And I feel like this is always the case, Franny, because like I mentioned, you can't keep everyone happy. But on the whole, how do you rate the job that Gareth Southgate has done so far in his time as England manager? I've been really impressed now. Um, and you're right in what you say. It, it just seems that there's always uh, 
a small number or a small section of the the, the, the football either media or supporters um, that that have the knives out for for whoever's the, the the England manager, regardless of who they are and how well they seem to be doing. And for me, Gareth Southgate has come through the system. You know, he was working with the the twenty ones for some time, wasn't he? I think and um, the the younger players, and I think that sort of progression of his career and, and also through the ranks uh, up to the senior level is, is, has been a, an interesting one and a, 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 a sort of positive one from a, a, a progression perspective for him as a manager uh, of the national team. And yeah, I, I, I guess the upcoming World Cup is going to be the, 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 the real test in many ways. You know, you, you, you mentioned in the intro, you know, where we've got to as a nation in recent tournaments in recent years and under Gareth Southgate's tenure, I, I think this is a big tournament now for for not just him as a manager, but also us as a nation. Um, you know, we've come within just sort of like touching distance of doing something special in the past on so many occasions. And now it feels that we've got the potential maybe with the, the players and Gareth with his experience now to go that one step further, which would be brilliant to see. Where do you think he ranks, Trevor? Because obviously you think about 1966 and England winning the World Cup, which remains our only major tournament victory. But Southgate has got the closest that any manager ever has since then. And you've played for England a number of times and there's been a number of really good managers that have taken charge of the three lines. But is it fair to say, I mean, do the, do the, is the evidence there to suggest that Gareth Southgate is the next best manager that England have ever had? I don't think you can argue with, uh, with that fact, uh, and it would be unfair to argue with it and try to turn it around to say that he's not uh, been an, an excellent manager for for uh, England over the recent years. Uh, and there are various ways you can measure him. You know, you, let's look at how he deals with media first. I don't think there's ever been anyone uh, as an England manager who's dealt with media better than he has. Uh, and he's had um, a few bumps along the way having to deal with players and uh, misbehaviour sometimes of players and how he's dealt with it cleanly, correctly, uh, and that's admirable. Um, he's also managing in the modern era where players are uh, very, very wealthy um, and that can be uh, a distraction to players. What I like about what he's done in St George's Park definitely helps with this, is about the, the, the getting together of uh, this group which has been sculpted and chipped away at and developed which is down to him um, over, over a period of, of, of several years and he's kept the spirit or he's, he's, he's improved the spirit uh, and the he's taken away the uh, the myths and the uncomfortableness that people can feel going into an England squad uh, sort of knocked down all of those barriers so it's a very much a family spirit club feel to what he's what he's developed um, uh, within the England camp and I think it's, it's it's very very positive I think that one of the problems we've got is he's been so successful we're going into the World Cup thinking well the next step is to win it isn't it and anything other than getting to you know the semi-final dare I say it would be looked upon as a failure wouldn't it I think to be honest with you uh, but he set the, his own standards and that's why he's kept the job for, for so long as well, because he's set, set some really great standards. 
uh, and he has got a great squad. We have had a slow puncture, haven't we, since uh, uh, the, the Nations League results against Hungary, uh, particularly. Uh, and it's been a long few months, and a little bit of a, a little bit of drive, a little bit of belief from the fans uh, has reappeared because of those results. Hence, these games uh, against Italy and Germany are massive, are really, really massive for us. What I thought was particularly interesting was Fabio Capello, a former England manager, was speaking to the media last week about England and their chances at the World Cup in Qatar. And what he said that really stuck out for me, Franny, was that when he was the England boss, he felt like in the September, October and November international breaks, England were ready to take on any opponent that the world could throw at them. But by the time a summer tournament came around, the trials and tribulations and that physical element of the Premier League and the intensity of the number of games maybe didn't have the players at at peak fitness and at optimum level to perform on the world stage and win an international tournament for England. So with that in mind, with the World Cup this time around being uniquely in the middle of November running into December, which is exactly the time frame that Fabio Capello was pinpointing, do you think that he has a point, the Italian, about the potential for England to be successful at that early stage of, of a Premier League season before they're completely burnt out by the summer? Yeah, I do, most definitely. It's, uh, it's a very interesting point. Uh, I think I've, I've been speaking and maybe everyone, all of us that are involved in covering football now, are, are, are completely intrigued in how this World Cup break is going to affect the Premier League. But flipping that to the national team's perspective, I agree. I think that the timing of it could massively benefit us uh, from a a freshness perspective, from a fitness perspective. Um, And coming into a tournament on the back of some build-ups that we're seeing at the moment, that Gareth Southgate has got a chance of getting the squads together not that long before the major tournament gets underway, has surely only got to be a positive thing. And... um, and I bet as well, there's almost a freshness and a hunger from the players' perspective as well. You know, they're not at the end of a long season uh, and then thinking, blimey, I'll, you know, and Trevor would be able to tell you this better than anybody, you know, how then you, you've got to flip into that mindset of thinking, well, I've now got to go away and perform in a major tournament uh, for my country. Must be a, a not just a physically demanding thing, but a mentally tough thing to have to do as well. So the timing of the World Cup when it's coming... I think it can only a big, be a big thing and a positive thing for, for us, for sure. You know, you, you could say, uh, but that's the same for all uh, all countries, um, that they're all a bit fresher than they would have been in the, you know, during the World Cup. Um, it does throw a lot of unknowns uh, in front of us as to uh, this competitive build-up to an actual World Cup is something we've never seen before. Uh, and, and what was normal is you finish the football season, then you, if you're picked for a, an international squad and you go into a tournament, there's, there is a lull, there's a, there's a week or 10 days off with your, with your family, then you meet up, then you prepare through a couple of sort of friendly matches to go to, a, to a, the tournament. This one is completely different. Uh, I think it's fair to say, because it's November, middle, mid-November, two months away, that every player who's going there should be in a rhythm. You know, it's not too early, it's not too late for them to be affected by quantity of games. We should see a real spectacle, uh, but I have to sort of reiterate that it's the same for, for everyone. And so there's no advantage, really, in my book. But 
it is going to be um, interesting to watch what kind of reaction we get from our players to adapt to this World Cup that's just thrown into the middle of the Premier League. I don't know how I would take to it. Uh, very, very unreal in many uh, or surreal um, in, in, in many ways that you do look at this. Yeah, it's unique in so many ways, like I said before, not only because it's the first World Cup in the Middle East, it's the first World Cup to be played in the winter. And it's also the first World Cup, which is basically confined within one city. So there's very little traveling that need needs to be done. You think back to the World Cup in Brazil, you know, you look at Brazil on the map and it looks like a big country, but I mean, the map doesn't do it justice. If you've got to fly to the Amazon and then to Rio and then down to Sao Paulo, all these different places, you know, the traveling does play a part in that. So Gareth Southgate will certainly have a challenge on his hands for the World Cup. Wish him all the best, of course. But it got me thinking and I wanted to know if Gareth Southgate's the second best manager that England have ever had. Let's just say that because he hasn't won a major trophy, unlike in 1966. Who's the best manager that England never had? I'll come to you first, Franny, because the answer when I googled this was just constant with all of the articles and the answer was Brian Clough, Brian Clough, Brian Clough. And you could go down through 10 articles and the answer was always Brian Clough. And on his Wikipedia page, it even says many people consider Brian Clough to be the greatest manager that England never had. Is that something you subscribe to as well? I, I, I think he was always a name, wasn't he, that... Um was was on the, the lips of everybody that whenever the the, the job came up um I, I i think he 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 probably because of his uniqueness uh shall we say uh was maybe a little bit too much for 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 the powers that be at the FA to appoint him into that kind of role because he was just so outspoken and uh just did things completely his way uh but certainly from a a neutral's perspective or a, a fan's element, I think it would have been absolutely fascinating to have seen him in that role, just to see how he would have dealt with the personalities, the characters, the media. Um, and maybe just sort of like, you we're talking about the best manager that, that was never an England manager. Maybe another interesting topic might as well, and I'm not going to cover it now, probably not anyway, because we've got a lot to get through on your, on your agenda. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe how... Previous England managers or national team managers, what would they maybe do different having been through the experience? Uh, would they change the way they, they managed or went about it or dealt with the media? Um, would be a fascinating thing to find out from, from those individuals as well. But, but yeah, to, to answer your question, Brian Clough would, would certainly have been a, an, an exciting and an entertaining man in the hot seat for sure. Can I, can I just add, uh, my, from my viewpoint, you know, uh, Brian Clough, oh God, he's entertaining. I can watch it, you know, YouTube now, and you just see some of those interviews. They're absolutely brutal, direct, really sometimes uncomfortable to watch. Right? I mean, that I is... watched one earlier, Trevor. Sorry to cut yeah. you off, but I watched one earlier, and he had he was he was being exactly that demeanor as you yeah. say. He was being very straight down the barrel, almost yeah. uncomfortably so as a viewer. And then out of nowhere, he just pulled this tiny little white and pink teacup and just started sipping his tea. And it was the best <laughs> juxtaposition I've seen. He was completely taking this reporter to town whilst we're having this like cute little teacup drinking from it. Can, can you uh, imagine? Yeah, you can imagine back in the day when English football was run from Lancaster Gate, an office in Lancaster Gate in London, that Brian Clough would be stationed in there with you know the the, the suits and ties <laughs> around him. 
that just wouldn't have worked. Remember, he did 44 days at Leeds United, right? He, and he went into something that, to me, would resemble an England dressing room of you know people who are at the top of their game, people who are quite strong egos, strong characters. And, and that was just an absolute train crash of, of a relationship, which never worked. Um, so I, I doubt that it would have worked. Brian Clough is an England manager, but it would have been fun watching it. You know, it might have been short, but it would have been, it would have been fun. I'd, I'd hazard a guess to be longer than Sam Allardyce and his one <laughs> game. But <laughs> what, what about Trevor? You, you, you were playing in teams in, in a city where we had probably Liverpool and Everton sort of dominating for many years. Was it Wilkinson and, and Bob Paisley sort of, I guess, through some of that time period? Would, would they have ever come into recognition? How do you think they would have done it? Yeah, well, Howard Kendall. Howard Kendall. Yeah, Kendall, yeah. not Wilkinson. Howard Kendall, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard, Howard Kendall, I think, had that. He never mentioned it, um, but I think he was in the running once or twice. I don't know if he ever got to an interview. Uh, I, I couldn't verify that one way or the other, but he was certainly uh, talked about. But he was still quite a young a young manager, even when he was having success at, at, uh, at Everton. He would only have been around 41, 40, 41 year old. Um, and he felt that he had a lot more to do uh, club-wise. But you've got to also distinguish the role that an international manager is uh, compared to the, the daily involvement um, with the group of players, completely non-related. Um, and this, you know, going back to Gareth Southgate, I think he is, he's made the job something very uh, rounded, you know, in, in you know, across the age groups, uh, the way that uh, St George's Park is also very central to it. The job looks completely different now to what it was. Um, but yeah, Howard Kendall would have definitely have been a, an interesting choice. But Howard was a character as well. You know, he was a proper, a proper bloke, uh, if, you, if you want to say it, uh, it that way. But um, yeah, I mean, back in my day, Bobby Robson was fitted the bill. Uh, I also was an England international under, under Graham Taylor. And I, I didn't think he fitted the bill as much. Um, but I just found that as a as a character and a personality and, uh, and and the way that he did things, which was different to Bobby Robson. Uh, you know, so who knows who knows who would make a good one or a bad one. It's uh, yeah, until you're in that hot seat, you just don't know. Uh, and Gareth Southgate has done a really, really good job in the hottest of hot seats. Yeah, he's almost Gareth Southgate, uh, a leader in more ways than just being the manager, like you say, the way he speaks to the press and stuff like that. But an interesting thread through all of the names that have been brought up to me, because I asked the lads in the office earlier who they thought would have been a great England manager. And we had a Brian Clough, we had a Harry Redknapp, and we had a Jose Mourinho. Three absolute characters. And I don't know whether there's a clamour amongst England fans to have someone slightly more charismatic than Southgate, with no disrespect to him, in the England hot seat. I don't know whether it's... a uh, a try it and see sort of I, I sort think, of situation. I just think in there, uh, you know, Arsene Wenger. I would have quite, I would have thought that he would fit the bill, but I don't think Arsene could be deemed as, as as charismatic and an outgoing personality. But he would have he would have fitted the the job description, I think, and with his international experience, um, that could have been something interesting. I don't know if he ever got offered the job. You might be able to to tell me that, but. 
uh, there's no big springs to mind really other than the ones you mentioned but I'd, I'd throw an Arsene Wenger there as a potential. Well, speaking of Arsene Wenger, he works for FIFA now, doesn't he? And he's trying to get the World Cup every two years rather than every four. So he's certainly in one of those high-profile positions, but not as the England manager. That is very firmly Gareth Southgate's at the moment. So we will wait and see what happens during the World Cup. And next up on the podcast, what we'll be doing is we'll be delving into the dark arts of professional football alongside Franny and Trevor. We'll do it after this. The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Dugout. Premier League Preview. Football Social Daily. Welcome back. This is The Dugout, the Premier League podcast featuring former top flight professionals. My name's Niall. I've got Francis Benali and Trevor Stephen with me on today's show. And Antonio Rudiger, the Real Madrid defender who arrived at the Bernabeu from Chelsea this summer, has been speaking to the media. And you often get these stories, don't you, during the international break where players speak to the press in their home country, in their mother tongue. And sometimes things are lost in translation. But I'm not sure whether this one was, to be fair, because Rudiger said... If a stadium was too quiet, he'd be looking to wind up opponents to try and get the advantage over the opposition. So I guess the first question, Franny, for me, when thinking about what Rudiger said here is how much does atmosphere impact the game? A couple of years ago, we were seeing empty stadiums when fans were kept away due to coronavirus. Players had to adapt to that. It was quite interesting listening to the games on TV and the radio when you could actually hear what the players were saying to communicate with each other. But how different is that, do you think, to adapt to? And how much does atmosphere play an impact on on how you perform? I, th- I think it can play a, a huge part in many ways, but I also fall into that category of, uh, and it'd be interesting to get Trevor's views on this, you know, that you, know, you become accustomed to, you know, an atmosphere or noise in a stadium, um, and, and interesting that you touch on the, the, you know, during COVID when we were playing in front of empty stadiums. I, I felt at the time that there were maybe certain players that it benefited playing in front of an empty stadium, almost like a little bit of a, a training ground kind of player that would have tried things more in front of, you know, an empty ground rather than a, a stadium full of supporters. So, you know, those dynamics were quite interesting at the time when we went through that. Um I think there's a, an, an element clearly of pressure uh, that every player and every team has to to deal with playing in front of so many people. But when you're doing it 
over a period of years and and and, and uh, you know becoming accustomed to it, it it just becomes second nature so playing in front of a lot of people with a, a wonderful atmosphere it can be the biggest buzz ever and inspire you on if you're on the opposite side of that and you may be visiting a, a, a ground as I would have done in the past with Southampton over the years where you thought this is a, a you know a noisy crowd they get behind the home team we need to quiet them down and I'm sure there's been countless team talks and again maybe Trevor's got his own you know experiences but I know there are often occasions where we would go out and say let's keep things tight let's not give anything away to give the home crowd something to get behind and cheer you know, almost try and quieten the crowd down first and then we'll build ourselves into the game. So there's there's so many interesting facets to to playing in front of a, a live crowd and a big audience. Um, but one, you know, I, I look at it from a positive sense thinking it was just the best thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Just off the back of that though, Franny, interesting. You mentioned about what would be said in the dressing room about going and trying to quiet the crowd down. Rüdiger says that if a stadium was too quiet, he'd be looking to wind up opponents. So were there ever any of those sorts of conversations in and amongst the lads in the dressing room where maybe you could target someone that you know had a short fuse? The example I can think of more recently is Crystal Palace against Liverpool, where Anderson, the defender for Palace, got right under Darwin Nunez's skin. And there's another famous one as well, where Zinedine Zidane threw the headbutt in the World Cup final because there was a little bit of sledging going on or whether it's right or wrong is another debate for another day. But were there any of any of those sorts of conversations where you were looking around and thinking, I know that guy's got a temper on him and we're going to try and figure him out? Not really. I mean, I think, it, you know, the, there wasn't the data and the science and, and the numbers behind or, or even the coverage on, on the sport. You know, like football is, is everywhere almost on a daily basis now. Uh, it wasn't like that back in our, our era. So... You know, like the, the coverage side of it was a bit different. You you literally had to work out your opponents pretty much through in-game experience and, and playing against these kind of guys or listen to the senior pros within the dressing room. There might have been one or two characters where you thought, you know, they can maybe explode if you get into them a little bit or put a heavy tackle in on them. Um, but, you know, from, a, from an amusing, uh, I guess, for want of a better way to explain it, I've got a memory as a young player in a, a senior dressing room at Southampton where there were some real senior professionals like Peter Shilton, Jimmy Case, uh, Joe Jordan, um, amongst many others. And uh, I, I remember Mark Dennis, who could be quite fiery himself, turning around one day saying, guys, listen, he said, if anything kicks off today, he said, everybody pile in he said because the ref can't send us all off <laughs> and that was very mark dennis i think <laughs> oh do you know what he half volleyed me into the stands in the dell right mark dennis let, let me <laughs> he did and i could see it coming and i you know that back in the dell when there was the uh the, the metal the iron railings the, the, sort the, of the little hoops yeah the little yeah, hoops yeah. over the top oh, of the I, land, I landed in the third row honestly <laughs> you know oh god he was brutal you you weren't the only one, Trevor. I yeah. think he did that to quite a few players. He did, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Trevor, you probably are more used to being kicked than being the one picking out other players, but you played with some characters in your time. I'm thinking of the likes of you know Andy Gray and Duncan Ferguson, just big, tough players. There's a few of those. So any memories of the dark arts and any players in particular that maybe were good exponents of that? No, we're all... We're all well, 
We're similar, but different. Players are, are different. I'm, I always, as far as atmosphere is concerned, I always try to like shut that out uh, and, and sort of bring the shutters down on that uh, and just get on get on with the game. Uh, and and Franny's right. If you're playing away from home, you want to get the crowd sitting on the hands. Uh, that's good. I don't get Rudiger's comments because he, you know, depends if you're home or away. If you're if you're away from home, you want to keep the crowd quiet, basically. Um, so why, why, you know, enter into the dark arts if you're going to rile the crowd? Doesn't really make sense to me. But uh, so I was a, a lightweight footballer, if you want. Uh, I wasn't physical. I just I couldn't. I didn't have the physical side of the game, so I kind of avoided all of that. But there were players who, and, and Mark Dennis was one. He would be chirping away uh, in, in your ear. Uh, you know, Vinnie Jones was one. Who would always have something to say? What sort um, of things would Vinnie Jones say to you? Unrepeatable things, Niall. Unrepeatable things. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got a bleep button, so don't worry about no, that. No, you know, he, he, he would swear and curse at you, and then he'd talk about, yeah, put it in the mixer. Which one of his, his great shouts? Uh, you know, uh, him and John Fashion would jump, put it in the mixer, put it in the mixer, which was the centre circle. So anyone near there uh, who was in the sound shot of that knew that there were a couple of brutes coming at you. Uh, just to intimidate you, you know. I I, I like watching cricket, and I, I love listening to those documentaries where the 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 guys are sledging each other, and you don't pick it up on normal broadcast. But when you get those documentaries and you hear the personal things that are said, uh, it's a different game. You know, you can see what it is to be at the highest level in that sport, and football is, is very much the same. There's a lot of conversations going on. I kind of used to go and ignore it. I don't know, Franny, if you got involved in, in uh, a lot of debate with the, with the, your opposite number. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But we're all a bit different on it. And it's, it's how you, you don't want it to affect your game. So you've got to approach it. How do you benefit from, um, from your actions on the field? I used to just, and, and another thing back in the day was if you got tackled hard, you used to want to get up and pretend it doesn't even hurt, right? and run off. It was a psychological, you know, uh, message. Now they want to buy a foul in many respects and make it look bad and get your opponent booked. It's not a part of the game that I like in the modern world, in the modern game, uh, but it's very much with us. I preferred the old style, the old way. Yeah, I mean, the heckling, the sledging, as you say, it is mental, isn't it, Franny? And you, you hear players that are always trying to find an extra edge and an extra advantage if that's what it takes, there are going to be players out there that will do that. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, and you know, coming back to Rüdiger's comments, the only thing I maybe get from maybe, like, say, lost in translation somewhere maybe, but I think there were occasions where in a game I would think this needs livening up somehow. So as a defender, I maybe would fly into a challenge, you know, just to try and spark something you know like ignite something it would get a reaction from the crowd or and or your teammates as well to say you know what however this game is going we need to raise the bar somehow and and sometimes you could get that through just putting one challenge in and then it would give everyone a lift and get people up out of their seats a bit i, um, I agree with that it's like the the, the roy Keane man united uh prawn sandwich brigade uh when, when they were when united playing a whole very successful team but the fans get you know slightly uh, complacent with that and, and they're sitting on the hands 
uh, and, and Roy Keane was the kind of man like like you did many a time, Franny. I saw you play a lot. I don't, I don't know how many times we played against each other, but I'm sure we did at some point. And and you you were a you were a pretty ferocious player, you know. As as I remember, you would get stuck in there, and uh, you had physicality in your game, um, and it does get the crowd up. Without doubt, it gets the crowd, you know, um, enthused. Uh, and, and get their attention again. A solid, good, old-fashioned tackle. Oh yeah, for sure. There, actually, there was one. Just talking about this, guys. There was there was one bit of interaction I remember that was the only ever time I experienced anything like it. I think, and it was uh, we were playing against West Ham away, and uh, again they had some players in their team. You know, Julian Dix was a pretty ferocious left back in his time as well, as well as being a fabulous footballer, but. You know, there, there, there were those personalities and characters, weren't there? And, um, you know, I remember Martin yeah. Allen as well, you know, his nicknamed Mad Dog, wasn't he? You know, again, he could be pretty feisty. Yeah. But I remember as a fullback uh, playing in front of the chicken run one day, which is, you know, a, a section of the West Ham support, home supporters that were like full in that little area. Right. And the ball going into yeah. the crowd in that, that part of the ground for obviously a, a, a throw in to, to us. So I, I went trotting over to the touchline and stuck my hands out to almost like, you know, for the supporters to throw the ball back at me. And uh, this object came back towards me and it wasn't until the last second where I literally like just sort of let it drop at my feet when I realised it wasn't the ball they'd thrown back, it was a raw chicken that someone had had thrown from the crowd. (laughs) It just landed at my feet. Um, So yeah, that was was one of the stranger ones. But uh, yeah, why they took a a raw chicken into the ground, I have no idea. (laughs) My next question was going to be, football's changed a lot since the 80s and 90s, but some things do stay the same. And I guess that the kind of getting stuck into challenges and getting the crowd up is something that has stayed stayed the same, but bringing raw animals into the stadium yeah. probably has changed a little bit um, over the years. Uh, really interesting chat there. And we're going to speak more as well about some of the uh, anecdotes from these two guys next on the podcast, because Charlie Adam, the former Blackpool and Liverpool midfielder, has announced his retirement. And someone texted me the other day saying, Charlie Adam's retired. He was an underrated player. And it got me thinking, are there any other underrated players that don't get the credit they deserve? We'll discuss it after this on The Dugout. The Dugout, Premier League preview, Football Social Daily. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Dugout. Premier League preview. Football Social Daily. Final part of today's podcast. Welcome back. My name's Niall. This is The Dugout. I've got Trevor Stephen and Francis Benali with me. And yesterday, Charlie Adam announced that he's retiring from football. The Scotland international is not really a Premier League legend with no disrespect to him, but some might say an underrated player. And it got me thinking, who's the most underrated player that either of you ever played with? I'll come to you first, Trevor. You played in a 
title win inside, an FA Cup win inside. So you've played with a number of great players, including during your England days and north of the border and, of course, in Marseille and France as well. So you've got quite a big crop to pick from. Are there any immediately that spring to mind from your playing days that you think that guy was underrated and doesn't get the credit he deserves? Yeah, I mean, there's one guy springs to mind immediately for me. And I played with him at, uh, at Everton. And he's a midfield player called Paul Bracewell. Uh, Paul uh, came to Everton from Sunderland, I think it was, um, and he'd been at Stoke City, went to Sunderland. Then we brought him in. We just won the FA Cup in 1984. Uh, we brought Paul in and no one really knew too much about him, but Howard Kendall knew about him from Howard's time at Stoke City and uh, he got the opportunity to, to bring him in. And uh, Paul was one of those uh, two-footed, uh, combative uh, individuals with a bundle of um, stamina, uh, physicality about his game, box-to-box, box, uh, and a brilliant reader of the, of the game. Yet he, he only got, I think, got one England cap uh, you know, in his career. He did suffer a little bit from injuries. But I tell you what, he added uh, to our team um, with subtlety and another cog in the wheel. So Paul Bracewell, for sure, would be one that I would um, uh, absolutely mention first and foremost. Uh, beyond that, a, a, another player who, again, I played with was a, a lad called Derek Mountfield, who was a centre-back. Um, and Derek scored... 16 goals as a centre-back for us in a championship winning season. But no one ever mentions Derek Mountfield as, as time goes by, except those Evertonians who followed that team. There's not much conversation that goes on around him. He used to get on, do the job, but he was so vital to us winning um, many, many points that maybe we shouldn't have done. And he got us out of, uh, you know, nil-nil draws or uh, one nil down, get us back into the game. He scored a, a critical goal uh, for us in the semi-final of the FA Cup against uh, Luton Town. We were one nil down. He scores a header at the back post for out of nothing. Um, at the end of the day, other players seemed to get the, the headlines. And, and Derek was one of those who uh, just turned up for duty, did it, was very effective and, and didn't really get the coverage. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you listen to people like yourself, Trevor, describe players that you played with that were that were underrated and you know like you say 16 goals from center back is a remarkable number of goals to score even today so interesting to hear your thoughts there what about you franny you played more than 300 league games for southampton so you must have seen some interesting players come and go through the doors over the years so is there anyone underrated that springs to mind for you yeah i mean when when i i say use the word underrated that that's not to say that they weren't any less good at you know, the rest of the squad, I'm sure Trevor has the same feelings because clearly as teammates and supporters, we all have players that probably do go under the radar a little bit that we don't see the pundits on the major talking, you know, football shows, talking about their goals, their pace, their skills, whatever it might be. It's often those other players that are just as valuable. And, and you know, I, I think there's Players maybe like Jason Dodd, who played a huge amount of games as well with me at Southampton, was our skipper for many years, played under a huge amount of managers, just again was a player that you would rely on going back to time and time again. 
another one in the latter years of my career at Saints, maybe someone like Chris Marsden, um, you would always be getting sort of like at least seven out of 10 performances week in, week out. You just knew that they were going to perform to a certain level, um, even though they may not have been doing the spectacular stuff as, as some of the other players. More, more recently, from a Saints perspective, I think players like Stephen Davis in more recent years was an incredible footballer that often didn't get the recognition I think that he deserved. And currently in the Saints, I think players like Stuart Armstrong, you know, I just think are fabulous footballers that, again, don't get that recognition. But I, my son sent me a stat, actually, when I, when I was just thinking about coming on the show. And it's just one I'll try and read now. But there's another teammate of mine, James Beattie, great guy, an absolute beast when he was on top of his game, you know, hard to handle for defenders. But he scored 53.5% of Southampton's Premier League goals in the 2002-2003 season. And apparently it's the most uh, any player has scored in the Premier League in the history of the, uh, of the competition. You know, that percentage of goals for a team. And I think, you know, things like that, players don't often get the recognition that they deserve at times. But, uh, you know, these kind of players are key to making that overall dynamic of a team fit together. Do you know what it is? And you, you touched on it, um, is the 7 out of 10 thing, right? It's, it's the, when they had a, um, an average game, it wasn't a shocker. It wasn't a, a real bad one. It had to be hauled off. Uh, they had a level of consistency. Uh, and every club needs two or three of these guys as well who you could just absolutely rely on. I mean, another one that I, I was thinking of, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just using my, uh, my reference points, but... Pat Van Den Howe, who was our left back at uh, at Everton, um, no one would consider Pat as being, you know, from outside of the club as being exceptional. Uh, just f- fitted into a good team, and that's very true. But you need those guys. You absolutely need them. And he brought qualities. He brought aggression. Um, he brought uh, passing ability. A right-footed left back, which brought another dimension to the balance of our team. And and, and those are probably um, the sort of the, the key benchmarks when you look for that underrated player. Uh, you would say about them all, this, they were consistent performers and reliable and the, the managers trusted them because they knew what they were getting. Um, you know, the managers as they selected that particular person. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's interesting to hear the guys that you pulled out. You know, Jason Dodd, I, you know, Jason played so many games um, and you played with him. I, w- I wouldn't know. All I know is that he used to play every week for Southampton. But what, what he gave to the team, only you would know better than, better than I. Do you know what I mean? The thing is, he was one of those players, Trevor, that, you know, with utter respect to him, wasn't the quickest. And yeah. I think he'd admit that himself. Mm-hmm. Yet, I can't ever remember a winger like whether it was... Ryan Giggs, David Ginola, uh, John Barnes. I can never remember anyone really absolutely having him on toast and like, you know, him struggling that much. You know, nobody from what I can recall ever went by him. Mm -hmm. You know, just a a good all round professional on and off the pitch and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and and a personality and a character as well, which is another huge part of Mm -hmm. the importance of that makeup of a team as well, isn't it? I think as well, when you talk about underrated players, it's kind of going back to what you mentioned, Franny. It's not to say that they weren't as good as the other players in the squad because there's criteria, I think, when it comes to this and more importantly, context, because 
you know, your your friend Matt Letizier, who scored over 100 Premier League goals, didn't play that many times for England and was a very, very good player. And some might say an all-time great Premier League player. But when you're talking about the players that have scored 100 plus goals in the top flight, you know, if you were doing a quiz, I'd, I'd argue that Matt Letizier might be one that some people tend to forget. And that's not to suggest he wasn't a good player, but maybe that again comes down to the context of how we're talking about these underrated players. Oh, for sure. You know, I, I, I would agree that Matt would come into a category of, you know, you wouldn't put him as a, an underrated player as such. But from an England perspective, you know, I think we could probably, it's fair to say, look back on now and think he's probably one of those players that you could have built a team around to a degree um, and maybe had more of an opportunity to have played at that level to show what he could have done. Um, you know, he he knew better than anybody what the strength he couldn't bring. But at the same time, the things that he could do were at times quite literally pure brilliance and genius. And, and we've, you know, you only have to look online to see the goals that he scored over his career if you never lived through his era at all, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It just depends maybe how you're viewed by the manager at that moment in time and things like that. There's so many factors that come into, you know, whether you're, 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 you're almost like a, a manager's first choice, if you like. Can I, can I give you one example, right? Because it's World Cup year, go back to 1966 in the England team and you look at Nobby Styles, right? Right? You look at Nobby Styles and a, a, a frail-looking footballer uh, sitting uh, in, in between Bobby Charlton and Bobby Moore. Yet, if you asked any of those players that were surrounded Nobby Styles they would say that he was one of the first ones on the team sheet. And or he, was, he was the little destroyer in many ways, but he's never looked upon as someone who won the, the World Cup for England, but he was a key element to it. So he'd be underrated, yet he did walk away with a World Cup winner's medal. So that's not a bad way to be underrated, I suppose. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, even more recent examples, in the last couple of years in the Champions League for Real Madrid, Benzema has been exceptional, but oh. he was always an exceptional player. But when you've got Ronaldo in your team, it probably overshadows that little bit. So there are so many examples of this, but great to hear what you guys think about it. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us as well. If you're listening to the show, you can get in touch on social media. Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is where you can find us. But that will do us for today's episode of The Dugout. Of course, we'll be back next week. Franny, Trevor, appreciate your time as ever. Don't forget, if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss a podcast again. This is the only show with a new episode on Premier League football every single day of the season. But that's it from us for now. And we'll speak to you next time. The Dugout Premier League Preview. Football Social Daily.